Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 7. As we come to the end of our time in the book of Matthew, and uh, the book of Micah, excuse me, we'll be reading the last three verses. That's Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Again, Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity, and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us, and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in a time of prayer. Oh, Father, as we come to your word, as the prophet Micah leaves us with this great word of encouragement, how we do pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts that we would see your incomparable greatness and the mercy which you have shown to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess ourselves to be slow of heart to believe in your mercy and grace. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength to see it, to see what you have done for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would do it for your own sake, O Lord. For when we, your children, understand the grace that you have shown to us, it leads in to the worship of your name. And so, Lord, open our eyes to these realities that the salvation wrought by your Son might be seen all the more clearly and that our lives might be devoted to you as a living sacrifice in light of all the mercies which you have shown to us. For we ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Who is like our God? That's the question that Micah opens with here in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you? It's a statement that shows God's incomparable ability, that there is no one who can compare with God. And if we were to answer the question, in what ways is God incomparable, we could list off a number of ways in which God is absolutely incomparable. And for all of the ways in which God is incomparable, he deserves our praise, our praise both now and forevermore. When we think of God's omniscience, that he knows all things. When we think of his wisdom, that he doesn't just know all things, but he even orders all things wisely so that they all move towards good and holy ends. When we think of God's all, his power, that he is all powerful, We think of it even as we read of his thundering from Mount Sinai in the Exodus. Or if we think of God's oneness, his unity, God's simplicity, that God is one and there's no way to divide him, that all of God is always in all places, 
when we think of his eternity, that he stands outside of time or his holiness and by which he is completely separate from his creatures and by which he is pure of pure eyes and to behold any evil. Or if we think of God's justice, that he always gives exactly everyone according to his due, that he is perfect in his justice. In all of these ways, God is absolutely incomparable. And for all of these ways, he deserves our praise. But notice that really none of these is what Micah is focused on. When he says, who is a God like you? He's focused actually on something different. There's really one aspect of God's character that Micah is holding up here in this particular passage to show that God is incomparable, that there is no one like God. And that one attribute is God's grace. Think of that. God's grace. That it's not just in all of these other inexpressible ways that God is incomparable, but even in his grace and in his mercy, God is incomparable. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquities like you do? There is a similar passage in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 7 through 10. We often quote it to speak of, of how uh, incomprehensible God is, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that his ways are higher than our ways. But even in there in the context, the context is his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways in his forgiveness of his people. This is to say, if if the situation were put before anyone else of the way that God's people sinned against him and you were put in the situation of God, you would not have forgiven the people of God. That there is an inexpressible incomparability with God in his grace that he shows mercy to his people. Now, this is exactly the opposite of what the world teaches and believes about God. They think God to be incredibly harsh with his judgments. What kind of a God would punish people by sending them to hell, they say. But for anyone, every single one who has seen the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been converted, who believes in the gospel, every one of them turned that question on its head. What kind of a God could even forgive one sinner? That he would even choose to forgive one sinner is just an, an incomprehensible, inexplicable thought It shows God's amazing grace. And this is the way that Micah chooses to conclude his book. These three verses are really the the tail end of a series of four stanzas that begin with Micah chapter 7, verse 8. We looked at at the first three last week in Micah uh, Micah 7, verses 8 through 17, where we see that even though God's people are in a deplorable situation. Their sins have gone over their heads. There's no one righteous. Yet there is hope. God will restore his people. And now here at the end, in these last three verses, Micah takes a step back, as it were, and looks at the whole scene of the glorious hope of God's people being restored despite their sin. And he's just led to praise. He's led to say, Lord, who is a God like you that you would show such grace to your people. And so this is all that we'll look at here this evening as Micah wraps up, as we wrap up the book of Micah, that God is incomparable in showing his grace to his people. That's, that's the message that Micah leaves. In light of it all, in light of everything that he said, this is it. God is incomparably great in his grace. So we'll look at this passage under three headings. First, verse 18, God's merciful character as Micah describes it. 
then verse 19, the way in which Micah then turns and, and applies God's merciful character directly to the people of God. So it's his merciful character in general, then as it's applied to his people in verse 19, and then in verse 20, we'll see how this mercy and grace was spoken of long ago, was spoken to the fathers. It's an overflow of God's covenant mercies. So God's mercy in himself, God's mercy applied to his people, and then God's mercy as an overflow of the covenant. Mercy in himself, mercy to us, and mercy in the covenant. So look with me again then at verse 18 as we consider God's merciful character. Notice this begins with this question which I have spoken of. Who is a God like you? Now, this question is a play on Micah's name. Micah's name itself means, who is like Jehovah? Who is like Yahweh? And so here at the conclusion of the book, the book ends with a word of praise as Micah asks the question of his name, who is like Yahweh? Now, it's not a, a question in which Micah is expecting us to give an answer. It's a, a question that's a rhetorical question. Simply asking the question is an answer in itself. Who is like Jehovah? Who is like Yahweh? There is absolutely no one like Yahweh. There is no one like him. He is absolutely incomparable. All the so-called gods of all the other nations are nothing compared to him. They are deaf, dumb, and mute idols, and they know nothing of the pardoning love of our God. And there is no person in this world who knows anything of that either in the way in which God can express it. God is unique. There is no one like him. And asking this question is meant not only to show that God is incomparable, that there is no one like him, but also to demand that God be praised. It's really a question that's not so much a question as just an ejaculation of praise to God. Here is the God of whom there is no one like. Let his name be praised. And as I said in the introduction, the way in which Micah says that there is no one like God in this passage is that there is no one like him in showing grace. All the makers of all the false gods, they know nothing. Even in their wildest imaginations, they can, they can know nothing of a God who could be so merciful to his people as the Lord our God is merciful to us. Now, as Micah begins to describe God and and describing his mercy and grace, he does so by building on uh, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament, which was Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, which if you were here this morning, was the passage that was used for the assurance of pardon. And that passage forms the basis for a number of other Old Testament passages. It seems to have been a favorite passage of the people of God and of the prophets in their meditations. And they would often praise God in the form, basing their, their words of praise upon this great revelation that God gave to Moses. You remember in the context, God puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and he causes all of his goodness to pass by him. And then he reveals himself to Moses, just like he did at Mount Sinai in the beginning in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush. But here it is not so much to show that God is sufficient all in himself and that he's dependent upon no one, but primarily to show these things which Micah is praising God for, that there is no one like God in his mercy. Notice what, what God says. 
the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Then he goes on to describe his justice, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And when Moses received that word, that revelation from God, he could do nothing else except fall down and worship God. That this revelation of God's grace mixed with his justice, a grace that doesn't in any way subvert his justice, but even holds up his justice, that a God who could be gracious like this just caused him to fall down and worship. And so there are many similarities in this passage. As we see that God forgiving iniquity and transgression in verse 18 clearly falls back to this same same text in Exodus 34. His God's mercy and compassion are mentioned in verse 19, which is also mentioned in, in this passage in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And then his truth in verse 20. All of these things, all these attributes are things that particularly were emphasized in this passage in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And it shows God's mercy. When Micah thinks of the mercy, then the God of mercy, who was revealed himself to Moses, he simply offers up praise to God. And this praise, notice, is said to be in verse 18. He passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. That is, it's not just a mercy for every single person in this world. The, God, the, the Bible does not teach a universalism, even as it teaches in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. God is merciful, but he also is merciful in a way that's, that's consistent with his justice, that he does visit the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And so his mercy here that Micah is particularly praising God for is the peculiar mercy and grace that God shows to his people, and not just those who are his people outwardly. We've seen that Micah has used this language of remnants of a remnant earlier, always actually in the passages which speak of the coming restoration, um, always related to those people who will receive the benefits of salvation when the Messiah comes. It is those who are the remnants, the faithful within those who are outwardly Israel, those who are Jews, not just outwardly, but inwardly. Because being a Jew is not, as Paul says, a matter of the circumcision outwardly, but it's a matter of the, of the heart. And so the same is true here. This is the peculiar mercy that God shows to all those who put their faith in the Messiah, to all those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the true remnant and they are the objects of God's mercy in a special way, a special way that goes beyond anything that the world can comprehend. There are other ways in which God shows mercy. But it is the mercy that he shows in the gospel that shows forth his incomparable excellencies more than anything else. And so think, brothers and sisters, if you are a part of this remnant, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, think of how wonderfully comforting this is that God has shown you mercy in his Son, that no matter what your sins are, that you've committed in the past, no matter what your sins are that you'll commit in the future, that if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of your sins have been paid for in him. You have been forgiven 
You have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You've been adopted. You've been guaranteed an inheritance. You've been given a down payment of that inheritance as God has sent his son to send the spirit of his son into your hearts that you might that proclaim Abba, Father, proclaiming and knowing the love of God as a father. And so if you if you are a part of this remnant, you have every reason to rejoice and worship God. And if you are not, if in your heart you know that maybe outwardly you're a part of the church, but inwardly you aren't really a part of the remnant, as Micah so calls it, what a, what a reason to turn to God that you will find him, every single one. Think of the mercy of the gospel, the grace of the gospel. Every single person who turns to God will find him to be merciful. All of these benefits, which I have been describing, all of them will be yours. If you will turn from your sins, you will lay down your weapons as you rebel against God and simply believe in him. You will be adopted and receive the forgiveness of your sins. Now, Micah goes on to not only just describe who God is positively, but even in a sense negatively what he is not. And at the end of verse 18, he does not retain his anger forever. There is a recognition here in the context in which we've seen um, last week and in many other weeks that Micah does pronounce words of judgment against his people and that he is angry with his people at times. So he does not bear his anger forever. There's an acknowledgement that he is angry now with his people, but there is just an end in sight. And this is what we saw even uh, in verse 9. As the church being personified says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. There are times when God in his fatherly displeasure is displeased with us. He's displeased with us when we sin. That displeasure itself is even rooted in love. Even as it's right and good that a father would be displeased with his children when they sin. And that's really in a lot of ways an act of love. It is not loving for a parent to just look over the sins of their, their children and not to be concerned about them. That only causes the sins to grow and it leads to, to the destruction of the child. And here there is a recognition God does have a fatherly displeasure with his people when they sin. But even though that's the case, Micah realizes he does not retain his anger forever. There is an end point to his displeasure. That he ultimately, just as a father is with his children, his wrath is swallowed up in his love. That there is really no comparison. His anger may last for a moment, but his loving kindness lasts for a lifetime, even into all of eternity. And in in eternity, he will show us the abounding riches of the grace and mercy in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not last forever. And Micah gives us the reason at the end of verse 18, because he delights in mercy. God does not delight in in being angry with his children. That's even one of the reasons why he changes his children, why he sanctifies us by his spirit. He doesn't have pleasure in the death of the wicked. Notice that God even says that he does not even show pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he does show great delight in showing mercy and grace to his people. When he shows grace to us, it delights his heart to do so. It delights him to do so. 
And this is the mercy and grace that Micah describes in in verse 18, which is the foundation of amassing this great question, who is a God like you? Who is to be praised like you for your incomparable mercy and grace? But notice that Micah does not just praise God for this mercy and grace in the abstract or for God's people generally. Notice it becomes very, very personal in in verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. On us, on us in particular. We who are the objects of his displeasure now, he will have compassion and mercy upon us. He takes the the ideas, the knowledge of God's mercy and grace to his people in general. And he says, because I know that God is like that, I know that he will be merciful and gracious to me. He'll be merciful and gracious to all of us. It's the same sort of thing that David does when he has that great prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. He, he, he describes God as being a God of mercy and grace. And it's because God's a God of mercy and grace, and it's that God that he sinned against, that he says that, that he asked that God would forgive him of his sins. God's a God of mercy and grace. Therefore, forgive me of my personal sins. And so one of the things that we see from this is that you ought never to doubt the Lord's grace to you. It's I, I've seen it before in, in some people, and it's a terribly sad thing, where people believe that God could be gracious to others. And they even acknowledge that God is gracious to others, but for some reason there is an inability for those people to see that God could be gracious to them, even though they appear to be believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would do nothing to say that they deny that. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in him and God sees you in his son. And you ought never then to doubt that God is merciful to you. God has said that he is a God who pardons iniquity, who passes over the the transgressions of the remnant of his people. And when he says that he, he does that, it means that he will do that for every single person who is a part of that remnant. And Micah knows because God is like this for his people. He knows God will restore us. He will restore us. We will bear the indignation of the Lord well, knowing that we have sinned against him, knowing also that he will again turn and have compassion upon us. Now, as Micah continues to describe the way in which God will show this mercy to his people, as he begins to apply it. He does so in terms of the idea of restoration from from slavery, and particularly the rest of verse 19 is really an allusion to the Exodus, that the Exodus is the great language of salvation in the Old Testament. And so in the second clause in verse 19, we see it says that God will not only have compassion on us, but he will subdue our iniquities. Iniquities here appear to be um, personified. This word subdue is language that's often used of taking someone and making them into a slave or a servant. So when you subdue a people under you, you make them to be your servants. And here it is the enemy who's being made a servant, but it's not a, a personal enemy. It's our iniquities. God will take our iniquities, which usually The Bible describes iniquities as causing us to be in slavery. All those who sin are a slave to sin. 
And yet it's our iniquities which usually make us slaves. God will subdue them under our feet and they will become slaves. Their power will be broken and God will bring us out of that house of bondage. He will subdue our iniquities under us. And part of the reason, the way he does that then is by fulfilling what he promised that he would do to the the children of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that he would do that by giving them a new heart. That's part of what God does. He breaks the bondage of sin by putting a new heart in his people so that they are no longer in bondage to their sins, but rather their sins are really in some regards in bondage to them. That there may be a sense of indwelling sin, but yet it is the Christian who will succeed and who will conquer that sin. And then... And then the language becomes very, very clearly related to the Exodus in the, in the second part of verse 18, in, of 19, when it says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is a, a very clear allusion to the song of Moses in Exodus 15, the song that the people of God responded to God with, with in praise after God had parted the Red Sea through Moses and brought the children of Israel through that sea on dry land. And then when Pharaoh and his army tried to follow and pursue, he cast all of them into the sea. He redeemed them by defeating Pharaoh and by casting them into the sea. Notice the particular areas, uh, verses where there is this illusion um, come particularly in verses 5 and in verse 11, particularly um, in verse 5. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone, describing Pharaoh and his army. In verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. And then even there is another allusion to the same sort of praise that Micah gives related even to Micah's own name in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders this 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 praise offered to god saying who is like you because of this casting all of the enemies of god's people which were their captors their enslavers casting them into the sea becomes now the basis for micah describing a future exodus when notice not our physical enemies will be cast into the sea but our sins will be cast into the sea. Now, this is very, very important language. Micah is building upon the language of the Exodus, but he's changing it to show what it is the people of God ultimately hoped for when the Messiah would come. In the days of Moses, in the first Exodus, it was Pharaoh and his armies that God defeated by casting them into the sea. But in the new Exodus, Micah says there is coming a time when God will send forth his Messiah. And when he does, he will cast not an enemy into the sea, not a a person, not the Romans, not the Greeks, not anyone who would enslave us outwardly. But he will cast our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is the great expectation and the proclamation of the gospel in the prophets that there is coming a day when we will be restored because God will save us from our sins, just like he saved us in the days of the Exodus. It clearly shows 
that the salvation which the, the prophets were expecting and which they proclaimed. Now, remember, this is the climax of the entire book. This is not some small, obscure passage. This is an important passage. The one thing Micah would leave us, it is not a salvation from a physical enemy. It is salvation from our sins. He will cast our sins into the depths of the earth, into the depths of the sea. And this is the salvation that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a salvation that Micah knew of, desperately looked towards and hoped for as something in the future. And we have it as the reality of our lives. He has already, not he will, he has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. He has broken the bonds of sin in our lives. He has subdued sin under our feet. He has poured out the Spirit upon us, even as he has promised. This is the salvation. If you are not in Christ, why, why, why would you not turn to to the Lord Jesus Christ and have your consciences unburdened, that weight unburdened, as you know that you have sinned against the Lord? You know that you are not worthy of his grace and mercy. And yet if you turn, this is what will happen. Your sins are cast into the depths of the sea and he will remember them no more. This is what Micah knew for me, for us. God will do this. He will have compassion on us. He's promised it. And this is the way that Micah ends. There's not just God's mercy in itself and God's mercy as applied to his people in the the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, But in verse 20, there's a recognition that this is the mercy and the grace which not only is proclaimed by the prophets, but it is the mercy and grace which was proclaimed to the patriarchs all the way back in the pages of Genesis, all the way back in the times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was the salvation that God had always promised his people. And Micah is saying, I know that God will bring this about. Because he has sworn to do it. He's sworn that he will do this for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice in verse 20, you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. God, I believe you will do it because you have spoken it. You spoke it long ago, seven or 800 years before the days of Micah. He could say, I know it's going to happen. It's been written. It's been recorded. This is uh, one of the great ways in which the promises of God are of use to us. They give us uh, many, many benefits. Uh, A few of them, just to briefly go over them, would be that they give great comfort to God's people. That when Micah was facing uh, the realities of the exile, which he didn't live through, but he proclaimed the realities of, he knew that the people of God were moving in that direction, and that ultimately they would go into exile. It was a great comfort for God's people to know in that time that there is yet a promise that God will bring his people back. Think of, of what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40 in the same context of return from exile. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Another benefit of, of the promises of God is that it gives faith a place to rest on. It gives us something to believe God in for. This is one of the things that that Calvin really emphasizes and does a good job of emphasizing the importance of the promises of God 
for our faith. We do, as our, as our standards teach, we tremble at the threats of the Lord. We believe everything that the Lord says. But there is a special place in our faith, for our faith, for the area of promises, the promises of God. It's, it's in particularly with regard to the promises of God that he's made to us in the gospel that our faith rests more than anything else. Our faith is a resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation in him, that salvation which had been promised to us. And the other benefit that the promises of God have is that they are a pledge of God's kindness to us. And this we see very clearly in Hebrews chapter 6, where we see the same sort of language that it even goes beyond just promises. Promise. Notice in this passage, it's something that's been promised, but it's also something which God himself has sworn that he would do, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And at the end of Hebrews chapter 6, God uh, the writer to the Hebrews just shows how God chose to try to, to show to his people that his mercy and grace was sure that there would be two unchangeable things that he would give to them, that they would know that God would be merciful to them. And that was his promise and his oath. He gives the promise to Abraham, then he confirms it with an oath. I swear by myself that I will do this thing which I have promised. You have the word of God in the form of a promise confirmed by an oath saying that God will be merciful to his people. It's a pledge of God's kindness. And this was this provided a great basis for hope for all of God's people in every age. As you have promised to Jacob and to Abraham, so you will do. And when God actually did send his son, this was exactly what was recognized by those who received that grace of being able to see the Lord Jesus Christ come. Remember in the song that Mary sings when she goes to visit Elizabeth after she recognizes, realizes that she is pregnant and will give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. She goes through this wonderful song of praise, which uh, appears to be based on um, the song which Hannah had sung in 1 Samuel 2. But at the end... She says this, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our forefathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. She recognized what is about to happen is the fulfillment of all of those things which had been promised going all the way back to the time of the fathers. And the same thing is said in Zechariah's prophecy as well. As he spoke, in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. All of them recognized with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the fulfillment of everything that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what was that promise? If I were to ask, what was, what's the, the culmination of everything that had been promised to them? In what ways does the Lord Jesus Christ actually fulfill those things? Well, the climax of everything that had been promised to the patriarchs and the reason why Abraham himself bears the name that he does 
is that God had promised that in Abraham and in his seed, one singular seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is the meaning of Abraham's name. I will make you the father of many nations. This was the oath which was confirmed to him. This was the the promise which was repeated to Isaac and then repeated to Jacob. This was the hope that was coming, that there would be a restoration of God's people. And when they are restored in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, which Paul interprets in Galatians 3 as saying that beforehand, God was speaking beforehand of the justification of all the Gentiles, that he would pardon all of their sins in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, all the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says. That's not an overstatement in any way. It's not something that's specifically Pauline. We've seen it in the prophets. There's been no other place that the prophet Micah has given to the people to hope. There's been no other place that he said to look, except to this fact that God will restore his people one day through the person whom he will send, who is the Messiah. All the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from beginning, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, all of it is looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and recording then that actual coming. How fitting it is that the end of Micah's book would leave the people of God with this great hope. So think about, think about where we've come in going through Micah. It's been several months as we've been going through it. Remember, there's been these three cycles that Micah has, has been going through. Micah goes from sin to, to the Savior, sin to the Savior, sin to the Savior. Remember how Micah began with pointing out the sins of God's people in worship in chapter 1. Then there's sins of defrauding others in chapter 2. Basically, you've broken the entire law. You've not treated God well. You've not treated his people well. But then he says that he will gather his people from the very ends of the earth. He will shepherd them and he will give them a king who will lead them out, who is the Messiah. Next, he addressed the sins of the leaders, that their prophets, their priests, and their kings in chapter 3 have all gone astray. They have consumed God's people. And he did that to set up a contrast with the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming glories of Zion. That even though you are suffering under this current leadership, which is abusing their power in chapter 3, yet there is coming a day when that same people, through the Messiah, will be lifted up and Zion will be made the highest of all the mountains in the earth in chapters 4 and 5. And then there is a dispute which Micah enters into with his people, that God himself enters into with his people. There is a, the courtroom scene, which God puts before the people his side, and then there is the side of the people. And God is completely vindicated in chapter 6. And then Micah says it's gotten so bad at the beginning of chapter 7 that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. But then at the very end here, he says, yet, after all of that, God will restore us. He will be merciful to us. And at the end, all he can do is he looks back on the grace of God and all the sins of the people. All he can do is say, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who pardons sin? This is the, 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 reality and this is what all those who know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ instinctively know in their hearts is it not if if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is this not exactly the way your heart responds to God as you look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and you just think how is it that a God so great could show mercy 
to one such as I. I have done nothing to deserve these things. May, may this always be the response that we have in our hearts to the grace of God. That our lives would always reflect this kind of praise. That we would always respond as Micah does. Who is a God like you? May God give us the grace to worship him and praise him. Not even just in our words, but even in our deeds. That he would give us the grace to live lives that are worthy of this gospel to which we have been called. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord, what can we do but worship you? Lord, even as the Apostle Paul has said, Blessed be your name, the God who has chosen us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, before the foundations of the earth, that we might be holy and blameless in you without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing, that all of the redemption that we have would be to the praise of your glorious grace, that in your Son we would have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, that we would have, even beyond that, the giving of the Spirit into our hearts, that we might cry, Abba, Father, that he might be a down payment of the coming glory to be revealed in us. Lord, as we think of all of these things, what can we do but worship and praise you? Lord, as we consider the way in which you ought to be praised, Lord, we are ashamed of the way in which we, we have given to you so little of the glory that is truly due to your name. And Lord, we do pray that you would sanctify us to this end, that we would worship you as you so deserve. For truly, Lord, we can say that there is no God like you and that you are worthy of our praise. And Lord, our not giving you the praise that you deserve is due to our own sin. And so, Lord, even as you promised that you would subdue our iniquities under us, Lord, subdue the iniquity of apathy towards yourself and cause us to respond in praise and that our lives would be a living sacrifice to you, holy and pleasing. For we ask in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.